Flurry is one of them. I mean, you know, we, like I said, we were insolvent three times. It means we were down to less than nothing in our bank account, but we should have walked away and given up. Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invests in founders focused on solving problems, leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on array.vc. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by DLA Piper, a global law firm strategically positioned to serve and support high-growth technology companies, venture capital, investors, and founders wherever they do business. DLA Piper's lawyers help entrepreneurs lead successful businesses through experienced, cost-efficient legal counsel from formation, financing, M&A to IPO. To learn more, please visit www.dlapiper.com. On today's show, we have Sean Burns, founder of Outlier AI, where he tackles how humans and AI will work together in the future. Sean sold his previous company, Flurry, to Yahoo before it almost went insolvent three times. Companies have so much data these days, partly because of, of analytics platforms like Flurry and Google Analytics and Mixpanel, but also because every cloud service you use is essentially a data platform now. You have Salesforce with your customer data, Stripe and Braintree with your payments, Zendesk with your customer support data, and they all make it available in real time. You can ask any question, get any answer, which is great because it's essentially a new world where you're no longer limited by data. If you go back 10, 15 years, if you had a question about your business, it might be impossible to get the answer. Mm -hmm. But now you can answer any question very quickly. And what I found in traveling the world with Flurry and talking to companies, the most common problem that they had with data was not their KPIs and getting answers. It was, what, what questions should I ask? Mm-hmm. What should I be looking in these mounds of data right. that you're producing for me? And I thought about it for a long time and realized that really what happened is the world changed. Right? Mm-hmm. We, we fulfilled the promise that we had in software of being able to collect all your data, store it, make it accessible. And what we failed to do is realize that once that, what, what do you do when that future comes? And so Outlier was started to be the world's first, what I call business analysis automation platform, where it plugs into all your different business data, wherever it lives, in your CRM system, in your payment system, in your analytics system, and it looks at it and essentially does what a human business analyst would do if they had an infinite amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then it looks for hidden problems, hidden opportunities, and it tells you about them in a way that you can make use of them. So essentially it's figuring out the questions that you should be asking. When you think about the, I went to graduate school for what we used to call artificial intelligence. Yeah. And then we called it machine learning. Mm-hmm. And now we call it data science. And next year we'll call it something else. It's all really just statistics, mm-hmm. which is the basis of what Outlier does. And you're right that modern machine learning is not great at predicting the future. But at the end of the day, it's also just a tool. There's no such thing as a machine learning company or an AI company. Right. There are the problem, the business problems that you're solving, mm-hmm. and and machine learning algorithms are a tool, the same way your business model is a tool, uh, and so Outlier makes use of most, almost all of the different machine learning algorithms you may have ever heard of in some way or another, but it's not that which makes us effective. What makes us effective is the use case and the user experience we built about how to consume it. Um, accuracy is a challenge in predicting the future, but Outlier is not trying to predict the future. Outlier is trying to explain the past, mm-hmm. which it turns out machine learning and statistical techniques are very, very good at. Um, 
And at the same time, there's always aspects of taking into account, if you design your product realizing that it won't be perfect, right? So Outlier, for example, every morning sends you an update. An and I love saying, those updates. Well, well the newsletter, at least. You can so we have a newsletter, yeah. Uh, yeah. but if you use the product, yes. it sends you an email yeah. every day with a list of things that happened yesterday that you might not be aware of that were that don't fit your business. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it understands your business cycles, your trends, your patterns. And so it, it wouldn't tell you, like, revenue is up. But it would say, listen, you know, revenue changed among women uh, over the age of 35 in the mm -hmm. UK mm -hmm. who are buying these products. You're just surfacing the relevant delta that you That's think. Right. Yeah. In, the, in, the, in the details, yeah. things are the things. But out of that list of things that it brings you, say, five stories, it's not like all five are, like, world-ending news. Right? You as a person still are doing that final level of understanding what, what of these five do I need to have somebody look into today and get to the bottom of. Um, but in some ways it's also like if you read the newspaper or a news site, it's not like every article is. It, like Maybe the headline's enough oh, for you. Yeah. Maybe you read right. the article and then maybe you do further research. Right. It's always a distribution that way. So if you take into account the limitations of machine learning, of data, in building your user experience, you can make it part of what you do. If we were to build Outlier and say, it's gonna tell you what to do, it's not just gonna bring you questions, it's gonna recommend action. AI, all those are just good terms for applications for that today. And so is your future of Outlier based on the thesis that there's a lot of data that um, is hard for business leaders to surface intelligence to make proper decisions? Yeah, it's based on the thesis that data, business data has been growing, and it's been growing faster than our existing coping mechanism can keep up with. Um, today, a business, and even an, an average size business, has more data than can fit on an Excel spreadsheet, or even fit in a single SQL table to do queries against it. And as it gets more and more complicated, it's harder and harder to make it useful. And even human beings have we have limitations too. It's mm -hmm. not just machine learning not yeah. So human beings are bad at lots of stuff. For example, human beings are really bad at exploring large amounts of data because we, we're pattern matching engines. And so we'll see patterns where they don't exist. And so there's, if you can think about the things that people aren't great at and essentially use technology to meet that need, especially in a world where that problem is getting bigger. I, I think about it as the winds of history, right? If you're a founder, you don't just want to work on a problem that's there today. Mm -hmm. You want to work on a problem with winds of history mean it'll be bigger in five years than it is today. Mm -hmm. And my thesis is that businesses are going to continue to gather more data. And in five years, you everybody will need a service like Outlier. Like, it would be crazy to think back to the world where you didn't have something like that mm -hmm. because you'll have so much data. In the same way today, uh, I don't go anywhere without my phone navigating me. Like, I haven't been lost in, like, four years. <laughs> I used to get lost all the time. But That's the idea funny. of getting lost is crazy right now. And I think in the future, you think about how crazy it is. Like, when was the last time you used a payphone, right? I used to carry quarters in my pocket. I was in people. India, uh, and my mom has a real phone, a cordless phone, I should mm -hmm. say. And I forgot how to operate that talk <laughs> button and when to press the numbers and then talk again. Yeah. yeah. It's tough. And so the world is going through these shifts as we have the ability to, 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 to fix these friction points in our lives. And what ends up happening is that uh, it used to be a generational shift, right, where it took a generation to, to change our habits. And now we're seeing interge intergenerational shifts in mm -hmm. behavior mm -hmm. driven by technology that are measured in five-year increments, mm -hmm. right? So... You know, five years ago, was everybody riding around an Uber? No, 
right? These days, it's a lot of people, it's how they get around, mm -hmm. and they're thinking about a post-car world. Mm -hmm. Now, it hasn't reached the majority of the population yet, right? But still yeah, I think what I find difficult um, as an investor sometimes is I just want the world to be data-driven. and uh, But then there is, you know, I don't think I'm, I don't think I can expect um, just to name a Fortune 500 restaurant, like a, let's, um, no particular reason, McDonald's or Taco Bell or whoever, to just kind of say, I'm going to use all my data to make decision on where to put my next store. <laughs> I just can't imagine that world yet. Well, they, they do actually. Yeah. They, they, they pay people. Right. right. So the consultants is, or whatever that is. But Yeah, well, there's actually, I mean, that's a good example. Yeah. So there's a company in Canada called Pinpoint, mm -hmm. right? And... They have a very interesting software platform that allows you to look at a location and predict the foot traffic and revenue you'd have if you put a store there based on other yeah. data that they have. Yeah. Today, that job would have been done by human consultants Yeah. that basically use spreadsheets and human analysis to do the same thing, but the software platforms are doing that much faster. I think even though the majority doesn't, doesn't do that, what you're seeing is, especially with these problems around data, mm -hmm. The pressure for efficiency in business is going up so fast with globalization and the realization that if I don't find ways to remove friction, mm -hmm. it's not only about raising my margins. It used to be. Mm -hmm. it's now it's just about protecting my competitiveness in the world. Yeah. And I think you know Amazon has this new uh, concept store where there's no checkout. I know. I love it's it. Fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. Right? I know. Really Whoever wanted to be in that line. Exactly, but it's a shot across the bow. I mean, the retail industry has been struggling for a while, and one of their major costs is the retail staff. And here's Amazon saying, I can run a store with no staff. Yeah. And if you think about that, those retailers may not need to have a store with no staff, but they're going to have to find some way to be more efficient so they can compete in a world where that exists. Mm -hmm. The same way that you know Uber may not drive all the taxi companies mm -hmm. out of business, but they have to adapt to a world where they're being forced to change. And so going back to the winds of history, you don't want to choose a problem where you rely on the, 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 the customer to change their mind on their own, right? In a real okay. world, the customer has no choice. They're being forced to change their minds. Um, so, and I completely agree that it is necessary and hopefully more and more companies will get data-driven. So does that mean they might start doing it in-house? The question is, if they want to do that and they are so worried about the proprietary data, what and move to the cloud is also another hurdle that they have to go through, especially the the fintech companies. What yeah. so so where do you? It's like a lot of questions here I threw out here. <laughs> no, it's a good it's a good point. Frankly, for any business that's utilizing machine learning, the question is, would I not just be better in hiring more people? And not just in the U.S., but around the world. There's, right. there's countries where you can get very educated people at very low rates that can do very right. complicated work. And I think if you're going to build a successful business based on machine learning and artificial intelligence, you have to believe a few things. Mm -hmm. One is people just would not be able to do the job no matter what they're able to do, even if they work for free. And so in, in my thesis, the, as business data grows, you know, today, what is your coping mechanism? You hire data analysts, you hire data scientists. There, and LinkedIn right now, there's 5,000 job listings for data analysts. Mm -hmm. The reality is there just aren't enough people with that expertise to do I these jobs if you want to hire them. Good argument, yeah. But even if you did hire them, all the data science teams I've ever talked to, they spend so much of their time on the data exploration and the ETL. Really what they want to do is they want to do the analysis, right? Mm -hmm. They want to understand these things. And software... And clean up and all... Yeah. That's right. And if Outlier can 
save you having to just try to boil the ocean and do this random search and say, listen, outliers look through all of your data. Mm-hmm. And these are the 10 things that look the most interesting. Yeah. And then as a data scientist, you can spend your time on those 10 things doing real analysis and adding new value. Yeah. Everybody wants that world. Everybody wants that to happen. And essentially, it's hard to find a large tech company or any sort of large, we, we sell to e-commerce companies mm-hmm. and marketplaces, where they haven't missed something. And it's not like they, in their data, something fundamental, something important that costs them a lot of money or, or was lost opportunity. And it's not because they're not looking. It's because, you know, at, at some point, these businesses are looking more like miniature economies, right? They're managed. They don't have control over everything. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have the challenges of price fluctuations based on supply chain, based on customer demand, based mm-hmm. on competitive influences, based on geographies. And there's so much going on. You know, in some businesses, things happen because you make them happen. Mm-hmm. But that's becoming less true as businesses become larger, even in, in the world growth of cloud software. Since I'm no longer just deploying software into a data center, you know, these companies that are in the cloud, you think about New Relic and mm-hmm. Workday, they have so many customers, they look more like consumer businesses, they mm-hmm. look more like economies than they look like the the old school enterprise software companies might remember. And so again, that goes to my argument that even if you had armies of brilliant people working for free, they won't be able to do it as well as the future systems. But I think there's also the argument that it's unlikely that software replaces people, right? at least anytime soon. Because Outlier, while it can tell you interesting things, it'll never understand the semantics of your business. Mm-hmm. It can't tell you, wow, listen, we, we lowered prices, that drew more product sales, yeah. but it's hurting our margin. Right. Strategically, it's not where we want to go. Like, <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> and, and maybe there is a point in the future where it does that. I, I'm skeptical. <laughs> I, I'm skeptical on the, our ability to build things cost-effectively that will replace people, at least in my lifetime, right? The funny thing is that's uh, before this was the BI industry, and that's what people expected almost to get out of that. Sure. And and then with, you know, machine learning, that's even bigger of a hope to think that's what you're going to get as an output, and there's a mismatch. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that's funny that you bring that up as an example. Like, they almost want a deterministic recommendation which is not possible <laughs> <laughs> i don't know in my experience most business leaders they understand their business well semantically they just they have trouble mapping the data into that model but if you bring the data to them they they like making those decisions they know what decisions and i don't just mean large enterprises i mean their restaurants mm-hmm. and stores right i mean they just they it's mapping between their model of knowing how their business works and what they should be doing that stuff and you know, Michael Lewis has a new book coming out that's based on behavioral economics. As people, we're just very bad at being objective, right? Because we're very biased in lots of subtle ways. And so one of the interesting things about Outlier is the promise that can you break out of that bias from thinking about your business? Mm-hmm. So, for example, you choose your KPIs, right? Mm-hmm. The most important metrics about your business. Yeah. But in choosing them, you're introducing bias. These mm-hmm. are the things you care about. Yeah. Are there interesting things that are going on over in that corner that you don't like looking at or like thinking about? Mm-hmm. And so if we can start doing that, maybe we can actually help people. Essentially, like a personal trainer would help you get better at using data by yeah. bringing it to you in a less threatening way and overcome those internal biases you have. Um, and I think the same is, you think about self-driving cars. I mean, it'll be a while before you have self-driving cars because I think most of the country would need to get adjusted to the idea. Mm-hmm. But we can all generally agree that there's applications of self-driving cars that make a lot of sense today. Like long-haul trucking would be mm-hmm. a lot safer and save a lot of lives. Yeah. Um, 
at the same time, long haul truckers would be like, no, I like my livelihood. I don't want to, this, this is a job that I probably can't get a similar one without a lot of education or something. And so there's always this push and take in these industries. And so if you're going to be successful today, you have to be able to position yourself where you help everybody win. You Mm -hmm. don't need to be, you have to avoid these either or decisions. Mm -hmm. So Outlier is not designed to replace data scientists. We're designed to make data scientists better. Cool. If we were to, if you were to try to start something where you're like, listen, we're going to replace your data science team, that's hard, right? Because mm-hmm. now you're making either or. Now you come back mm-hmm. to the accuracy of machine learning. Now you come back to like, am I willing to bet on robots over people? Yeah. Now the reality is in manufacturing, if you went back 30 years, you could get industrial robots, mm-hmm. but we largely still use people. Yeah. Today, that's not true anymore. They actually trust robots more than they trust people. Mm-hmm. And the economics are yeah. compelling. But that's taken, again, mm-hmm. a long time. And it, but it's, 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 at the same time, it's an intergenerational yeah. shift now. It doesn't take a whole generation to shift out. Yeah. And that's accelerating. So in 20 years, will that technological cycle be even shorter? Right. What if it's three or four years now? What if the millennials that are going to be the business leaders of tomorrow are yeah. so used to growing up with technology that they've reduced our adoption mm-hmm. cycles even further. I mean, it's, it'll be interesting. Yeah. So where do you think AI is today? I mean... It's over in, in room 59B. <laughs> uh, Can we go talk to her? <laughs> uh, you know, I, it's... A, there's a lot of open source software out there by all major companies. We know the argument yeah. is you are only as good as the data you own. Um, and that's where a lot of startups um, may have trouble because they don't, they may not have that much training data. So a lot of innovation has been done already in creating uh, better algorithms that can, you know, take smaller data sets and be smarter. Sure. But what's next? And, you know, what, if I were... See, I'm just gonna, I, I think yeah. that's, uh, So I went to graduate school for, for machine learning, you know, a long time ago. Same here, but long <laughs> time ago as well. Not as young as I like to believe. And what the technologies we're using today are still basically the same ones that That's were in the like, textbooks back yeah. then. We haven't invented new mathematics, right? What's happened is that the cost of data storage mm-hmm. and the cost of computing and the data itself has plummeted so yeah. fast yeah. that the algorithms that we used to use can operate on such larger sets of data that they're just better, mm-hmm. um, and the cost of applying them is cheaper. I remember for my graduate thesis, it took me hours to train algorithms on mm-hmm. my laptop that literally takes seconds mm-hmm. to train now, which means that instead of training it on a few megs of data, mm-hmm. you can train on a few petabytes of data. Yeah. Um, and that's really what's made it possible to apply it. At the same time, it's not like machine learning is this magical powder that you sprinkle on things and makes it more successful, right? It, what? It, I know. <laughs> well, if you find a magical powder company, you hook me up. You want to invest in that. It's more like, it's a tool. Like I said, it's, in fact, in a lot of cases, machine learning isn't the right tool. I, to I'm going to push back. I just want to like, there's so many. Is there hear, is a magical powder company? No, but there's so <laughs> many companies that like that I should believe that, right? Like, oh, I'm an AI company and the, under the hood, it's, just all this, all the other typical stuff that they're using, but for whatever reason, they're an AI company. Sure. And, you know, if I were to just step out of it, there are still hard problems we solve. Like, I don't think, like, I think um, you might have come across this, but like a, a movie script written by, uh, <laughs> that's a fun movie to watch, actually. Um, it's, the problem is not solved, right? Like, so what's, 
What do we need to solve those kinds of problems right now? Well, again, I think you're sol if you're building a business, yeah. you're solving a problem that already exists. And machine learning is a tool that you use to solve that problem. You're not going to create new problems. It's just not how things work in general if you want to make money. There are a lot of novelties out there like machine learning that's being able to write scripts. Uh, I think much more interesting is how effective machine learning is in doing content filtering. Mm, yeah, right? well, that's the problem. And that's we all actually very have, interesting. Yeah. Uh, but even then, what you're seeing is these hybrid models where humans will train. Basically, the, the machine learning algorithm will watch a human do an activity, mm -hmm. and then it can do it faster. It can be it can reproduce that action a lot faster. So, an algorithm can't tell you that this video is pornography. Mm -hmm. But the minute you tell it it's pornography, it's very good at finding it wherever mm -hmm. it is and just going out there. And so that's largely the applications that you see scaling up. I think the reason you see so many companies that call themselves AI, <laughs> and thankfully we're past the world where everything was AI as a service, AI as a platform, <laughs> which is a fancy way of saying I really like machine learning, but I have no real yeah. business problem to apply it to, yeah. so I'm going to let other people figure that out for me. You see a new generation that are doing what the first web companies did, the first mobile companies, saying... I'm going to use mobile, I'm going to use the web to solve a business problem or a consumer need, and I'm going to plot, use machine learning as a way to do that. I, I do suspect many of these companies will fail, though, mm -hmm. because they won't be... They You need to be a certain level better than the state-of-the-art to be successful in this world. Mm -hmm. And in many of these cases, I, I don't know it's so much about the data in my case, because data has become so liberated in the world that it, you can usually find the data you need. It's that... Machine learning is just not better enough yet than what's going on out there right now um, to make it something that will win in the market, especially in the venture-backed model where you have to be really good and grow really fast. It's just it's tough for me to imagine that will happen across every industry and every possible. Mm -hmm. The same way, like, mobile changed a lot of what we do, but it didn't change everything, right? And so I don't think that machine learning will change everything, but... Optimistically speaking, it should have the ability to make a lot of businesses more efficient in various mm -hmm. ways. Speaking of mobile and apps, um, do you, in your, for your previous life, what, where do you see the app uh, world? You know, is it flattening? Are there, you know, are people fatigued by more apps? I think people say they're fatigued by more apps, but really, what's happened is mobiles become the internet, right? And so we're fatigued by apps the same way we're fatigued by websites. Like it's not it's not really fatigue so much as it's reached a point where it can't be exponential growth anymore because it's become what we what we use. I spend more time on my phone than I spend on my oh, computer yeah. in a lot of cases. Uh, and the apps are just better experiences for me right, right. now than mobile web pages. Maybe that changes, maybe it doesn't. Uh, I think there are, there are businesses where going to mobile doesn't make sense, mm -hmm. where it's not part of what you do. Like Salesforce still doesn't have a mobile app client. I think it's amazing, but they... Clearly, it's not hurting them. Oh my god! I know. <laughs> uh, so there are. Businesses they do have it actually, but it's pretty bad. Okay. Well, they do now. They didn't for the longest oh, time. God. But you know, and then there are businesses that have mobile has become what's enabled them to be successful. Yeah. Right. I mean, Twilio when they launched um, was a great, interesting platform, but it was the rise of mobile apps that needed these telecom services that made it the huge business that it is today. Right. And so mobile has been an enabler for some. It's been a non-impact for yeah. others. Uh, I think that you know, it's. I think the future of mobile is very secure in that it's changed human behavior so fundamentally that it's not going to go back. The same way, same reason we're not going to go back using payphones, right? 
Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know about you, I might. <laughs> well, what what is, do you see like VR or, you know, any AR or any of those other tech to be the new mobile? I think the problem is every, we're always, most of the venture-backed returns are produced during these technology cycle changes, yeah. right? So when mobile explodes, mm -hmm. it becomes a big thing and the internet explodes. Or the cloud exploder. Mm -hmm. That's when venture back returns. So we're always in Silicon Valley of looking course. for the next one. Yeah. The reality is, if you look back, we're really horrible <laughs> at seeing it ahead of time, right? So I will give you a, in mobile. When I started Flurry in 2005, people told me that it was a horrible, horrible idea that you could never make money doing it. And even in 2008, when we shifted over to being a platform, uh, we couldn't raise money because nobody thought native apps were a thing. Clearly there's nothing there. Nokia was going on and on about how the iPhone was just a proof of concept and it wouldn't really have a big impact on the global market for cell phones. And then here we are, right? <laughs> so, I mean, general Silicon Valley, it was, we're just really bad at knowing what that next trend is. I think, I like VR, it's interesting, but um, one of the reasons we're bad at picking out what the future is, is that we don't think so much about the adoption of new technology, we just think about how cool it is and how exciting it is, right? Actually, I think of this is my theory. Sometimes it's humans, you know, just like we can't see that many steps out, mm -hmm. it's we end up becoming a more step function. So, iPhone comes out, everyone's like, "Oh, apps might be a cool thing to do." Apps happen, and you think of something else that. But I think there are far few people who truly go out like predicting. Um, in 1981, what the world's going to be like in 1991 and in 2001, and we call them sci-fi writers, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Although, I mean, here's the case in point, right? Why did mobile, why did smartphones grow so fast? Why did apps become such a big mm -hmm. thing? Inadvertently, I will actually argue that the driving force of smartphone adoption was the fact, was carrier economics, mm -hmm. right? The carriers had introduced this model where you would go in and get a new phone every 12 to 18 months as part of your contract because they were using that to create, to reduce customer churn so they can increase their lifetime value of customer to pay for the large spectrum investments they had to make. <laughs> but they created a model in doing that. Inadvertently, they created the perfect world of technology adoption because that means that every 12 to 18 months, they were turning over your phones. And so a smartphone had an opportunity to jump in. If you only change your phone over every three to five years, we would still be waiting for smartphones to kick in. Yeah, that's a good, interesting point. So you're saying, do you think we'll go back to that world? Because the carrier model has changed again, and they're just well, you know, said, they're it's, passing it's, it on to you. Yeah, but it's too late. It's already fundamentally changed how we behave. Interesting. But you think about 3D TV. Yeah. 3D TV was actually really cool. Mm. But there was no forcing function. Nobody had any reason. <laughs> oh, I, I don't and know I if still, it was cool. I still get headaches. <laughs> well, I still use the same TV I had 10 years I know. ago. If I, my TV turned over every interesting. year, and everyone's did, yeah. we would probably be using 3D TV. Right. Well, I wonder, I now have to go back and think about all the other tech that could take advantage of this Well, this model. is the thing, going back to what I was pointing yeah. out, like we don't think enough in, in terms of, we get so excited about the potential of new technology, mm -hmm. we don't think enough about what What's it will going take to cause to adoption. adoption. Yeah. What, are the, what are the opportunities that exist? Like, in the history of, of technology, we, we, we wax in philosophic about Betamax versus VHS and all these things, but the reality is the technologies that win are the ones that find a way to be adopted at scale. Mm -hmm. Not always the best technologies, not even the most promising technologies. So what made the Oculus possible was the rise of the dropping cost of personal electronics due to the rise of smartphones. 
at the same time, most VR platforms now are just smartphones. Yeah. Right? I just put my Vive in my headset. Yeah. And I don't need to go spend money on yeah. Oculus to do it. And so the and question the, is, And the most popular AR app, like, was, anyway, the... Why am I blanking on this? The meaning of life. The pursuit of happiness. Blue, oh, my God. 42. Oh, where you go find things. I know. I mean, Pokemon Go? Pokemon Go! Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so... Exactly. And so why did Pokemon yeah. Go work? Because everybody had nostalgia from growing up with oh, Pokemon, yeah. right? Like, it's, Pokemon is one of the few properties that's actually now survived three generations of children. Yeah, I know. It keeps coming back up. I know. I'm like, I thought it's, it was for old people. I mean, honestly, <laughs> you know, my neighbor's kids still do Pokemon card collecting, just like kids were doing when I was. Yeah. By the way, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you're a perfect entrepreneur for other entrepreneurs to learn from. You... Oh, bad idea. No, don't for me. Do the opposite of whatever I do. Definitely don't start a business and also. At least tell company. us what you did so we can do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so, what. what you you said you had you know you went through cycles without you know where it was hard to fundraise. Um, you oh, yeah. you were persistent and and you had a vision. Um, so what what is it like? What should current entrepreneurs? When do you know when to stop versus when <laughs> following your passion? That's, like you it's, it right there. <laughs> no, that's the question. I mean, being a founder or starting a company is horrible. <laughs> it's really really horrible. I can't describe how horrible it is until you do it because you can't really I know grasp I can't. how horrible it is until yeah. you do it. And, and you're you know, in it again. Flurry, Flurry will see, they always look at the end, right? So Flurry had a happy ending. It was a big sale to a big company. But what they don't see is over the nine years that it existed, it was insolvent three times, right? We, you know, I wasn't paid for three of those nine years at all. There was portions in there that I was getting minimum wage and uh, you lived in the brink of failure for most of the life of the company. They always focus on the end, right? It's always the end result. It's really horrible. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I think that if you enjoy it, there's probably very few other things you could do. And so going to this, <laughs> That's the problem with most entrepreneurs. They're right. unhirable. <laughs> but thinking about this question that you've highlighted is, how do you know that you should keep pushing versus give up? That is the hardest problem as a founder. And to be honest with you, I still have no idea because there's no objective way to measure it. Uh, most companies, there's so many startup company stories that you hear about how they succeeded after pushing past the brink of failure. And Flurry is one of them. I mean, you know, we, like I said, we were solvent three times. It means we were down to less than nothing in our bank account where we should have walked away and given up in markets where people, everybody was saying it was a horrible idea. Yeah. Any objective measure, you should have given up. And what, what drove us to keep going? I on it maybe stubbornness, mm -hmm. persistence. Yeah. I mean, if if you persist and you succeed, people say that you're a genius. And if you persist and you fail, people are like, well, he's stubborn, he should have given up. And there's no there's Agreed, really, yeah. there's so much survivorship bias in this that <laughs> I, I really struggle. One of the founders that I'm most impressed with is a friend of mine who started a company in Dallas and he worked on it for, for five years. He ended up selling it. I mean it wasn't a huge win. But the reason it was the most impressive was that all five years were a struggle. There was never mm -hmm. a point where things were really just smooth and cruising. And in Dallas, there's not a lot of venture, so you're, you're being scrappy, you're doing what you can. Uh, and it was really, it, it always thinks back to his story and how it inspires me that there's a point where, you know, you have to be persistent and have grit and mm -hmm. not give up. And 
I, you know, being in Silicon Valley, being able to raise venture money, there's a lot of things that I'm lucky to be able to do and thankful that I have the opportunity to do that not is not true of all the founders in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tough, and we, we stare into the abyss every day. I mean, that's part of why being, <laughs> why is being a founder horrible? There's lots of reasons. But one of the worst <laughs> is that, you know, it's a roller coaster of emotion. You could be taking over the world in the morning and have no chance of success by the afternoon. Or you and, can have or you can have this amazing success that was announced like three months ago, but it's just like getting yeah. everywhere and, and but you're going through like the hardest deal of your time oh. at the same time. And, 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 and the worst is it never goes away. Like look at Pebble, they they ran the largest, most successful Kickstarter campaign in history with Pebble Two. They got an offer they turned down for a seven hundred and forty million dollar acquisition and they just announced that there was a fire sale. Like and that happened in less than a year. Yeah. As you get bigger as a company, the farther you get, there's never a point when you catch your breath. Yeah. The problems never go away. They just yeah. get bigger and more difficult to tackle and deal with. And it's tough. It really is very difficult. At the same time, you are always, if you're the kind of person, as I mentioned at the beginning, where I'm good at lots of stuff, but I'm not great at anything in particular, and I like doing lots of stuff, every day is a challenge, mm-hmm. but a different kind of challenge. There's some jobs where you show up every day and you're doing the same mm-hmm. thing, and there are people who are very good at that. Yeah. That was never me. And I'm not anti, I had a lot of fun with the team. I worked with Verizon, I like to work, but what I'm doing right now is what I enjoy doing. Yeah. But there'll be a point, frankly, where I probably just won't have enough emotional gas left to be able to keep riding the roller coaster. Uh, it's not now, it won't be next year, maybe 10 years from now. At some point though, like, it is so horrible to be a founder <laughs> you can't do it forever like i don't know it's a disease oh, like, <laughs> i've I, seen many founders catch it uh, many many times oh, and it just doesn't go away it's tough, but it, i mean it's just it's so hard it's so people are like oh you know, he doesn't time. truly mean to discourage you, founders. <laughs> well, people are always like, oh, the second time founder who's had success, it must be so easy. And that, by the way, is totally not true. <laughs> uh, in fact, in some ways, it's harder. In some ways, it is easier. But in general, it's just it's difficult in a whole new set of ways. Yeah. I think when I was starting Flurry in 2005, the world was totally different. There was no such thing as, as, a, as a seed fund. There yeah. were angel investors, but only if you knew them. There was no angel list. So you yeah. either knew them or you didn't. Yeah. There was no Amazon Web Services. Uh, all these things that we use that have lowered the cost of building a business didn't exist back then. There was no cloud computing, blah, 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 blah. Well, but on the contrary, because it's easy now, there are companies that exist that shouldn't exist. Oh, sure. I'm not saying it was yeah. easier or worse back then. It was just yeah. so different. Yeah. That, like, you know, now I'm starting Outlier. We have a team of seven people. In some ways, it feels, it feels kind of like when you go visit the neighborhood where you grew up in. And it seems familiar, but it's also changed so much that it's also not familiar anymore. <laughs> That's kind of what it's like starting uh, Outlier and working Good today. Um, and, and I, but I enjoy it, and I think this time around I'm much more thankful for the journey, and I'm enjoying the journey. Uh, the first time with Flurry, like I don't know if you ever go to the amusement parks, we ride a roller coaster. The very first I love time, roller coasters. The very first time yeah. you ride a new roller coaster. You're white knuckling it the whole yeah, time because exactly. you have yeah, no idea yeah, when to be scared. So you're just yeah. scared the whole <laughs> ride. But the second time you go on that same roller coaster, you you know when to be scared, so you can be relaxed. But when you know to be scared, you're more scared than you were the first time because you know to be scared. <laughs> That's kind of what it's like. That's exciting, and I love it. I love roller coasters. I I've been to so many theme parks so many times, and the go. crazier the better. 
Uh, but on that note, um, I want to say thank you. Oh, thanks this for having is, me. Yeah. A lot of fun. This, we, can, we can continue. I know there's so much pearls of wisdom that you can impart <laughs> on, the, on the founders that, <laughs> and tell them to not start this journey. <laughs> Um, That's right. Next on the podcast, <laughs> never start a company. <laughs> but, you know, uh, thank you again for your time. And uh, I'm Shruti again. I'm at Shruti on Twitter. And Sean, would would you want uh, new followers <laughs> to yeah, come you find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as S. Burns, S-B-Y-R-N-E-S, or SeanBurns.com, or Outlier.ai is my new company. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you.